0: Hey everyone, I'm so glad that you're with us today, but I'm also really looking forward to seeing every single one of you in person next week. For so long, we've been gathering online and it's been wonderful and God has still been at work. But in many ways, we've kind of still been the church, but the church scattered. From next week, we get to be the church gathered once again, and I'm so looking forward to it. But also to let all of you know that whether you're coming in from other parts of the world or you can't join us in person for whatever reason, we're still going to be streaming online at 9.30, and we're also going to have our services available on the internet forever afterwards. Alright, so I wonder if any of you have ever had to plan a party, a big party, like a 50th or a wedding, and you've gone through the guest lists, you've prepared for the day, you get to the day, everybody arrives, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, where's, I don't know, a good friend of yours, let's say Fred, where's Fred? And you just feel the blood drain from your face. Because for whatever reason, there was no evil intent, there was no subliminal reason You simply forgot to invite Fred and you're going to go to him and you're going to ask for mercy and forgiveness. But at the end of the day, you overlooked Fred and he wasn't at the party. So the question is, is that like the kingdom of God? Does God just happen to overlook people? And well, sorry for them, but at the end of the day, they never made it into the party. Here's this week's question. God is both loving and just. If a baby is born within another religion and never heard the gospel and is totally into that other religion and then passes, do they really not get into heaven? And guys, this is a huge question and is really worthy of our attention. Often the question is phrased like this. What about the island guy? you know, in a tribe somewhere in the middle of nowhere? What about someone from a primitive tribe in the middle of the Amazon? They've never heard the gospel. They're going to be born and they're going to die in their culture without ever hearing the truth of Jesus Christ. What happens to those people? Now, before we dive into this incredibly weighty question, I want to ask you to check your heart. I want to ask you this. What do you want the answer to be? I'm sure that for most of you, most of us want the answer to be some form of, well, that guy and his family, they're they're going to be okay. Because there's something in you that wants everyone to be saved. And if you want everyone to be saved, you would be agreeing with God, because as we're going to see later, God also wants everyone to be saved. But here's what we need to be very careful of. As we become aware of our biases and what I want the Bible to say, I need to be careful I don't read what I want the Bible to say into the Bible. So I'm going to ask you to kind of lay down what you want the Bible to say. I'm also going to ask you to lay down your 10,000 what ifs. Because I'm sure as I read this question out, 10,000 what ifs came into your mind. What if, what if the person never hears the gospel? Or what if, like so often happened, the missionary came with a gun and a Bible? Or what happened when the person who shared the gospel, just in their ignorance or their immaturity, got some things wrong? Or what happens when, you know, the person who's sharing the gospel is just arrogant and just an ugly person, and this person is not really rejecting God, they're rejecting this person or this presentation of the gospel, what if, what if, what if? Well, here's the thing. By the end of today's message, I promise you, you're going to have 10,000 more what ifs. And so I don't want these what ifs to become like a smokescreen that prevent me from actually coming face to face with truth, what the Bible is teaching. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with fixed points. Clarity solid ground reliable truths and once we have uh, recognized what is reliably clear and true then only are we going to follow some of the breadcrumbs into less clear territory all right so a number of fixed points and then go from there so let's start off with fixed point number one fixed point number one is this God wants everyone to be saved. That is good news. God wants everybody to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 verses 4, speaking of God, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Guys, I want you to reject any idea or any caricature of God who relishes in people's destruction. If people dying apart from Christ horrifies you imagine how much it horrifies God we see this in Jesus Christ for example when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus tried to get to the source of his need and then this rich young ruler exercised his freedom to walk away from Jesus Jesus allowed him to do that but he watched this man walk away with such deep sadness So listen, if God wants everyone to be saved, does that mean, well, God gets what he wants because he's God. So the end, let's close in prayer. Amen. Well, let's go to fixed point number two. Fixed point number two, salvation is in Christ alone. Earlier, I read from 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. Let's read the very next verse, which says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. There's an identity to this one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. John fourteen six, Jesus famously says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, verses 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What these verses are saying is that there is an access point, and the access point is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But is this just arbitrary? I mean, is this kind of like God inventing some like difficult problem to solve and sticking it at the bottom of the ocean? And if you happen to find the problem and solve the problem and come up with the right answer, then okay, you can be saved. We're going to discover this is not just an arbitrary test or a hoop for us to jump through or some red tape to say who's in and who's out Jesus is the only one qualified to say these things and to be these things Jesus is by definition the one who gives life he is the only one qualified to do that he's the only one qualified to be the way to the father because he is the only one who is fully God and fully men somehow bridging in himself divinity and humanity. Jesus is the only one who lived the perfect righteous life. Jesus is the only one who fulfilled hundreds of details of prophecies and Jesus is the only one who has actually dealt with the sin and the death and the pain that exists between us and God. Therefore, He is the only one qualified to say these things. So a common objection is, okay, but couldn't God have done it another way? Couldn't God have just kind of waved His magic wand and forgiven us? And I I understand the emotional impulse behind that question, because in our minds, that makes God more loving But the reality is it makes him less just. If you think about what a good judge is, is a good judge someone who just lets everybody off the hook. Now, if they're letting you off the hook, well, that's okay, right? But if they're letting everybody else off the hook, especially people who, in your opinion, deserve to be held accountable for what they did wrong, that doesn't make him a good judge judge and for that reason he's not just and in your mind he's probably not even that loving here's the other thing about jesus our judge he also decided to personally deal with the very things that exist between us and god he is the one who took on the sin of humanity on the cross and for that reason it was brutal it was violent it's it was horrifying but that is why on the cross we see not only God being perfectly just but God also being perfectly loving another comeback when it comes to this we call universalism which is some form of isn't everybody right but here's the thing logically no not everyone can be right for example when it comes to who God is in Jesus Christ Islam says that Jesus was just a prophet. Hinduism says that Jesus was a God amongst billions of other gods. Um, Atheism says that Jesus may have existed, but he was just a good teacher and a prophet. Christianity says that Jesus was the son of God. Mormonism says that Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer. Logically, not all of those people and those positions can be true. Only one of them can be true. Now, I know in our efforts to be less confrontational, there's an impulse in many Christians and many non-Christians to say, but everybody must be right. We want to be tolerant of these other people. And we also don't want to offend people unnecessarily. And I get that. We shouldn't want to just randomly offend people. But here's the thing. By saying that you think all religions are right, you have just offended 90% of the world's population. Because you're claiming to have a view of reality that they don't. And that they are all wrong in light of your view, your exclusive view of reality. So yes, Jesus is making an exclusive claim. But everybody who opens their mouth on this topic is making an exclusive claim of truth. Fixed point number three. And I'm going to move a bit quickly here. But fixed point number three is... Being good doesn't save us. You see, here's often how the argument goes. I look at my neighbor of another religion or my atheistic neighbor and they're wonderful, good people. Well, let me first say, okay, but good compared to who? Good compared to Hitler? Okay, they're good people. Good compared to really bad people out there, criminals and drug lords? Okay, they're good people. Good people compared to Mother Teresa? Okay, well, maybe not that good. Well, what about compared to Jesus? What about compared to Jesus? So, if God only saved good people, does that make him good? I want you to really think about this question. If God only saved good people, would that make him good? You see, there's two sides to the story. See Romans 3, verses 23, which says that, For all have sinned, and have fallen short of the glory of God. When we do compare our lives against the perfect life of Jesus, we realize that we are sinners. Even if you consider yourself a good person, some sort of benchmark of goodness that you line up to, compared to Jesus, we've fallen short. You see, you have still failed yourself you have still failed your family there are still blind spots in your life there are still frailties and limits and, and let me call it sin in your life that you cannot somehow deal with and get rid of and yet jesus lived the perfect life the perfect life in thought and deed and motive andrew wilson the british pastor and theologian he suggests this thought experiment let's say that you can play god for a day And so you're going to get rid of, number one, all the really evil people in the world. You know, the Hitlers of the world, the drug lords and the sex traffickers. We're going to get rid of them. And so you eliminate them. But then you realize that the world's still a horrifying place to live in. So you get rid of the next level of evil people. You know, criminals and and really bad people. And then you realize that there's still unhappiness, pain in the world. There are still marriages that are failing, families that are hurting. And so, okay, we're going to get rid of the next level people. But there's still pain. And so the next level people, until the next level of evil people in the world, is you. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. But then there's the other side, which is the really good news of the gospel, where Jesus says in Mark 2.17, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to only call the good. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, when you realize that even you, a good person, have fallen short, the gospel is for you. Or maybe you you know you're not a good person. Maybe you know that there are things in your life that you deeply regret. There are people that you have hurt deeply. Maybe you know that the world wouldn't call you a good person. Be it now or in your past. The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't only save good people. Guys, let me say, if God only saved good people, that would make him an elitist, not a savior. And so the good news is that regardless of your frailty, your pain, your brokenness, your past, your shame, the gospel is for you too. Fixed point number four, just like being good doesn't save us, being sincere doesn't save us. Again, we look at people from other religions and we say, but they're so sincere in their devotion. My first response to this may sound abrasive, but roll with me. One of the ways that God describes our relationship with him is covenantal marriage. And so when we go after foreign gods be it another religion or we worship other things or people that are not god he calls that idolatry or adultery imagine you find out you're married and you find out that your spouse has been unfaithful to you but the comeback is but they've been so sincere in their devotion and in their love for this other person that doesn't make their adultery okay and here's the other thought on this on this issue, is that sincerity is no test of truth. You can sincerely believe something. You can sincerely believe there's a million dollars in your bank account, or if you jump off this cliff, you're going to fly, and you're going to discover what truth is. On the other hand, unfortunately, you can be a horrible, insincere, grouchy, ugly, bad person and if you are believing what is true, it doesn't make what you believe untrue. Sincerity is no test for truth. Let's talk about one more fixed point for now. There are many more, but otherwise the sermon would be about four hours. But fixed point number five is no one has no knowledge. No one has no knowledge. You see, our understanding is the guy on the island or the guy on the Amazon, they don't have access to the truth, so they have an excuse. But what we're going to discover is that God has revealed himself in what we call general revelation, in general ways to all people. General as opposed to specific revelation, the name of Jesus, what he has done, just the great truths of God's word. God has revealed himself generally in two ways, in creation and conscience, creation and conscience. Number one, creation. Romans 1 verses 19 says this. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, plain to everyone, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, creation, so that men are without excuse. And what this verse is kind of saying is that regardless of who you are, you look up at creation. And you begin to wonder, well, if there's a God behind all of this, He's got to be incredibly powerful. He's got to be eternal. And so there are certain truths that you can come to about God that are available to everybody. That's creation. Let's talk about conscience. Romans 2 verses 14 to 15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law These are, in in this understanding, these are people who didn't grow up with Moses and all the Bible stories and the, the Old Testament scriptures. People who do not have the law still do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law since they show by their behavior and their conscience that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness And their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. And what this verse is saying is that regardless of who you are and where you were born, you've got a conscience. Everyone has a conscience. Let me differentiate quickly between our conscience and our behavior. Because maybe we look at certain people and we say because of their behavior, they clearly don't have a conscience. But what we'll discover is that regardless of their behavior, they have a conscience, even though they may have chosen to override it. For example, someone who is a thief, who steals for a living, they have chosen to override their conscience. But if you had to steal from them, you'll very quickly discover that they still believe that stealing is wrong. J.D. Greer suggests this thought experiment. He says, Just imagine everyone had a tape recorder around their necks, or maybe an app on their phones. And every time this person said, you know what people ought to do? You know what that guy should have done? You know what she should do? You know what people must do? That every time they gave some moral ought, it was recorded. And then it comes to the end of their lives. And their own life is matched against their own sense of moral oughts what you're going to discover is that they fall short of their own consciences, their own sense of morality. All right, so we've looked at a number of fixed points. Clarity, solid ground. Already, I'm sure you have 10 million more what-ifs. But what we're going to do is we're going to follow the trail of breadcrumbs a little bit further, once again acknowledging that we're moving from clarity, to less clear territory. All right, so we're going to do this humbly with a recognition that I don't see clearly, but there are some breadcrumbs. So let's follow them and just see what they have to say. So here's a thought. If God has revealed himself generally to everybody in creation and conscience, what does he do with somebody who responds positively to that? So Romans chapter 1, If someone is maybe brought up in an atheistic worldview or a a different religion and they start to look at creation and something in them starts to say, you know, if there's a God behind all of this, they're very different to the God that I've been told exists or doesn't exist. And, And so what happens when someone responds to them or what happens in Romans chapter two? If someone decides to get in tune with their consciences and that there are going to be times when their conscience is going to lead them away from the construct that they grew up with, be it another religion or this idea that there is no God. How does God respond to that? See, the verse that we read early in Romans chapter 2 talks about their thoughts now accusing them because we don't live up to our consciences but also defending them. What does that mean? What does it mean that how I live in accordance to my conscience can be a defense to me? Let's read the very next verse, uh, Romans two, verses 16, which says this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. As my gospel declares, you see, here's, What's going on here? Regardless of what that verse means, that my conscience could possibly, possibly be a defense to me, or my response to creation could leave me without excuse, or could potentially be a defense. Regardless of how God chooses to interact in that moment, for you and me, as we said earlier, there are 10,000 what-ifs, 10,000 obscurities, 10,000 complexities, that make me playing judge and jury in that moment impossible. You see, this is happening in a secret place according to this verse. But God, who sees with absolute clarity, perfect love and justice, who knows everything, who sees through the mogginess and the murkiness and the complexities with absolute truth, He is the only one who knows, and therefore he is the only one who is able to judge. See, at that point, we've reached the limits of our insights and our awareness and our knowledge. And we've got to trust God in that. One more verse quickly, Acts 17, verses 26 to 27. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this. Why? So that so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Remember, God wants people to be saved. Now what doesn't seem to be going on here is that God has determined where people are going to live and the times that they're going to occupy their time on planet Earth so that he can exclude them. Some people have said that. As I read the tone of this verse, it seems to be that God has determined the times and places where people should live so that, so that in their culture and time and place, they would seek Him and perhaps reach out to Him and discover that He is not far from every single one of them. What does that mean? What's going on there? I think at least one of the things this means, we've got a number of missionaries in our church and a number of missionaries that serve in the Muslim world. One of the things they're discovering is that sometimes the gospel goes somewhere and they discover that God has already been at work there. There are so many Muslims who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so for whatever reason, this person, Looked at what was being told is true about God to them. And they looked at their consciences and the world around them and said, there's more. And reached out to this, there's more, God. And then God reached down to them and revealed himself. And this can happen in dreams. This can happen through a friend. This can happen through a missionary. This can happen through YouTube. This can happen through through some incredible online resources. So is this like, whew, I'm so glad to discover that God is at work all over the world in this mysterious ways. Now I don't need to share the gospel with my neighbors. I don't need to go on missions trips anymore. I don't need to pay for missionaries to do this incredible work. I want to point out in this Act 17 verse one word, the word perhaps. Perhaps. Perhaps people would reach out and find that God is not far from every one of them. Think about a hundred people you know, a hundred people you're praying for, people in your family, people at your workplace, people from high school, people who don't know God the way you know Him. How many? Of those hundred people are actively seeking God and reaching out to Him. I would place a lot of money on the fact that every single one of your responses could probably come down to less than five out of a hundred. In other words, regardless of someone growing up in the Amazon or on on an island or surrounded by religions in our city... Or the false religion of materialism and self-determination. It is very rare that people do this. That people respond to creation and conscience. That people seek God and reach out to Him. Now this doesn't speak to the nature of God. It speaks to the nature of man. But that doesn't mean... We give up. Jesus actually trained his disciples when they went into villages to look for evidence that God is already at work preparing the way for them. And Jesus even said that if you're treated with hostility, walk away and go to the next house, go to the next family, go to the next village until you see a house of peace, a man of peace, evidence that God is already at work. Now get to work where God is already at work. Which brings us back to one more fixed point. Fixed point number six. God saves powerfully through the gospel. Romans 1.17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the work of God in Jesus Christ. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so the idea is this. That if people respond to creation and conscience and therefore choose to reach out to God and seek Him, that's kind of looking for God in the dark. But bringing the gospel is like switching the lights on. And here's what missionaries have tended to discover. That if people have somehow tended to respond to the mysterious ways in which God has been working in the dark, in the cloudy spaces, when the gospel is brought to them, they tend to say, yes, yes. I never had the language. I never had the words. I never had the understanding. I never had the theology. But that is the God that I've encountered in this mysterious way. Guys, the idea of God being at work across the world in mysterious ways doesn't make the gospel less necessary. It makes the gospel more necessary because we bring light. We bring clarity. We take captive false thoughts. We're able to establish churches and places of discipleship and the kingdom of God advances. So guys, there's no doubt that this is an incredibly difficult question and and a weighty question. I want to give you some advice from Saint Anselm, who was an 11th century philosopher and a theologian. And he said that we should give thanks for whatever of the Christian faith we can understand with our minds. But when we come to something we don't understand, we should bow our heads in reverent submission. That seems like good counsel to me. One last thought, one more fixed point, that as we move from some of these fixed points, some of these places of clarity, into some of our what-ifs, Following some of these breadcrumbs, which don't give us absolute clarity, there is one more fixed point we can rely on. And I know this kind of sounds like a cop-out, but it is so powerful. And that is the fixed point of God's character. The question, as I read it to you, assumes the fixed point that God is perfectly just. And perfectly loving. That means... That when God is making judgments on these things. With a clarity that you and I don't have. He is going to be perfect in his evaluation. Perfect. Faultless. In his judgment. In his justice. And. One day we will see it perfect in his love but here's the final challenge to you don't let these what-ifs or this intellectual question be a foil to not live out the reality of the gospel if you're watching this you have received the light of the gospel And we're going to be held accountable for how we respond to the light, even as Christians. Are you living in such a way that you are a beacon of light? Are you making Jesus less clear by how you carry your life, or are you making him more clear? Are you part of the expansion of the kingdom of God? Or are you someone that got it to work around? I know there's hard to say and hard to hear, but I'm hoping you're hearing the invitation that we respond well to the light and the truth and the glory and the beauty of the gospel. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. I thank you that you bring life and you bring light. And I thank you that even in the middle of obscurity, we still have things and truths and solid ground that we can hold on to. I thank you that we have Jesus. I thank you that he is the way, the truth and the life. I thank you, God, that you want everyone to be saved and that you have made a way. I thank you too, God, that we can trust your wisdom and your love and your justice in the areas for which we don't have clear answers. But we trust you and we love you. And God, we choose to move towards you and the light we have received. I pray that we would shine and live well that Christ would be clearer to others because of our lives, our deeds, and our words. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.